1: The future is coming, and you can make it brighter with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a unique website, showcase your work, blog, or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. You can customize everything from look and feel to settings and products using beautiful templates created by world-class designers. And there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SO SMART to save 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. To the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode 124.
0: President meet with the leaders of a country like North Korea. Obama extraordinarily said I'd meet with him. Senator Obama made his intentions crystal clear on the campaign trail. I will meet not just with our friends, but with our enemies. President Obama likes talking to dictators.
2: He would meet with some of these madmen without any preconditions.
0: You know, I'm going to reach out to
1: these crazy people uh,
0: around the world and try to get things done. Yeah.
1: I think that's a mistake. Obama is right. bowing and scraping before dictators. What is Team Obama? Doing? This is a clip put together by Now This News and went viral last week on Twitter. And in it, they showed how years ago Fox News was very critical of Barack Obama when he said that he would like to meet with the leader of North Korea. But now, now that Donald Trump has expressed interest in doing the same thing, well, well, here's some more of the video
0: with these people. A remarkable turnaround in relations between two historic adversaries. The commander-in-chief's leadership is now leading to a major foreign policy breakthrough. Another stunning Donald Trump breakthrough. President Trump scoring a
2: big win.
1: It's time to celebrate a great victory when it happens.
2: President Trump proves the experts wrong again. Now,
1: this is hypocrisy, sure, and it's a double standard. And I think that one of the things we immediately take from something like this, from watching something like this, is that there's some malevolent intent behind it, that the anchors and the pundits and producers over at Fox knew what they were doing. But now that I've had a chance to speak with some researchers who study the metacognitive awareness of belief change, I can't help but wonder if the people over at Fox News, while praising Trump, had any recollection at all that they once felt much differently about American presidents reaching out to North Korea. Yeah, and I mean it's I think one of the things that's interesting about this phenomenon
2: is that in many cases we just don't have any record of what we used to believe or how we used to feel about things.
1: That's psychologist Michael Wolf.
2: My name is Michael Wolf. I'm a professor of psychology at Grand
1: Valley State University in Michigan. Wolf told me that when news outlets like Fox or when politicians or other public figures change their minds, the public often sees that as hypocrisy or a lack of conviction. One of the most famous instances of this was in 2004 when John Kerry was running for president. Many of the attack ads called him a flip-flopper for saying that he voted for an appropriations bill before he later voted against it. For updating his priors in light of new evidence, The opposition ran ads like this. never commit to what you believe in, who will ever commit to you? John Kerry has changed his mind on all these important issues. Now there's nothing wrong with a little indecision, as long as your job doesn't involve any responsibility. John Kerry has changed his mind time and time again. If you thought you could trust him... You might want to change your mind, too. It's a pretty good ad, you have to admit. I mean, it's ridiculous, but, uh, you know, it's politics. But Wolf says that we change our minds like this all the time. It's just that our changes aren't recorded for posterity. And so we assume that what we believe now is what we've always believed.
2: Yeah, Mm. that's right. They, yes, they are documented. And it would be easy for us to convince ourselves that we don't change, but... Maybe all that's happening is our old opinions are not documented.
1: (laughs) Sometimes, though, our old opinions are documented. And if you've ever read an old journal or a diary, you know this all too well. In fact, you will likely be confronted with a stark realization that if you could go back in time and meet your old self, you might not get along. You might argue about the same kinds of things that you argue with other people about today. And now, even if you don't journal or write in a diary, with social media, we are all able to see that we're leaving behind old versions of ourselves, remnants of past beliefs that will probably make us cringe as the decades erode, our old beliefs and experience replaces them with new ones.
2: You know, now with social media, we have a lot more documentation of our day-to-day thoughts. And certainly if you are, say, a prominent politician and you're on TV, you're being interviewed all the time, then your beliefs over time are very well documented. So it would be easier to go back and point to a time in which someone's beliefs may be different. But for most of us, we live our lives without documenting our beliefs moment to moment. And so there just is no way of knowing whether our
1: current beliefs have changed or not. And this is the topic of a new paper that Wolfe and his colleague, psychologist Todd Williams, have recently published, The Strange, Subjective, Invisible Nature of Personal Belief Change.
0: Both to ourselves and to other people, we don't like to appear inconsistent.
1: That's Dr. Williams, and he says that because brains value consistency so much and are so determined to avoid the threat of decoherence, When our beliefs change, we more or less forget that we ever believed otherwise. That way, the story we tell ourselves about who we are can remain more or less heroic, with a stable, steadfast protagonist whose convictions rarely waver, or at least they don't waver as much as those of shifty, flip-flopping politicians.
0: Sometimes pointing out inconsistency, say, between a current attitude and a previous one, might elicit what's called cognitive dissonance. And that's just sort of an uncomfortable mental state uh, where we realize that there's an inconsistency between our behavior and attitudes.
1: Cognitive dissonance is a well-documented phenomenon in psychology and neuroscience. But one of the aspects of cognitive dissonance that hasn't been researched in any detail is that... Well, it it isn't something we always notice. When we feel dissonance between belief and behavior, or attitude and belief, or a belief and the presence of challenging evidence that calls that belief into question, we resolve the dissonance by eliminating one side of the conflict. For instance, if you believe the Earth is flat and then you see a photo of the Earth from space, you can resolve the dissonance by discounting the photo, saying it was photoshopped or something like that. There are many ways to resolve the dissonance so as to avoid changing your beliefs, but if you resolve it in the other direction by admitting you are wrong and then updating your priors, Wolf and Williams say that we often forget that we ever felt wrong in the first place. And Wolf got the idea to study this when he noticed this process happening in his previous research. My research traditionally has been on text comprehension,
2: looking at how people understand things that they read, how we remember and use our knowledge that we gain from reading. And several years ago, I became interested in what happens when people read information that's connected to beliefs they have. So, how well you understand or don't understand information, if it matches your beliefs or doesn't match your beliefs, um, through a series of Studies, I found that if you look at things like people 's changes in beliefs, how well you understand what you read turns out to have really nothing to do with whether you change your beliefs or not. so the background that I came into studying beliefs with uh, doesn 't turn out to predict where most of the action is in beliefs. Comprehension work
1: is my is my research background. Um, and a lot of what I have published in the past. And in that research, Wolf was astonished to find that when people did change their minds, well, they just didn't seem to notice. And once they believed differently, they could no longer recall having believed otherwise. And that led him to launch an investigation into why that happens and how it affects people's understanding of belief change itself. And that is what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast right after this commercial break. Audiobooks are great for helping you be a better you, whether you want to feel healthier, get motivated, learn something new, whatever it is. With an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, Audible has all the audio you need to start your year on the right side. Now, you can get both of my books there, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb, are on Audible. And if you want to keep digging into the things we talk about on this show, I recommend some of the books from previous episodes, like The Unpersuadables, The Wisest One in the Room, and The Day the Universe Changed. I just went on a long road trip and I listened to both Alan Watts' The Book and Sapien's, both on Audible. So seriously, this is a great service, whether it's on your phone through your car, from a tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo. You can chew through tons of books while doing almost anything. And Audible lets you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. Now, you can start a 30-day trial and get your first audiobook for free. And all you have to do is go to audible.com slash so smart or text so smart to 500-500. That's audible.com slash so smart or text so smart to 500-500 for a 30-day trial and a free first audiobook. Audible. You can do it with audiobooks. Like many of you, I love challenging myself with new and exciting insights about the world around me and with the great courses plus. I am constantly feeding my curiosity, learning from some of the brightest minds, award-winning professors, and experts about virtually anything that interests me, explore the universe from my living room, improve my math skills while driving, learn to take better photos while on a walk. I have unlimited access to more than 9,000 lectures that I can watch or listen to whenever I want. Now, I want you to check out this course that I enjoyed. It's called How You Decide the science of human decision-making. Have you ever wondered why your neighbors painted their front door lime green or wished you could watch TV without reaching for snacks over and over again? Have you ever walked up and down the toy aisles to find a birthday present and left without buying anything just to stop at the convenience store on the way home and buy the only toy on the shelf? You will learn the answers to all of those things. Why you did those things with Dr. Ryan Hamilton, a consumer psychologist who explores how factors such as emotions, social influences, and even evolution affect your decision-making. And you'll get the tools that you can use to help improve the decisions that you make in the future. Now, I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus as much as I do. And for a limited time only, they're giving my listeners a special free month of unlimited access to all of their lectures. You can listen to The Science of Human Decision-Making for free, but you need to sign up through my special URL. Start your special free 1-month trial today by going to the slash smart That's the slash smart And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney and this is the you are not so smart podcast. When psychologists Michael Wolf and Todd Williams set out to study whether people noticed that they had changed their minds, they first needed to be specific about what it was that they were studying. They wanted to study belief change, and as we've mentioned in the show before, Once you start studying belief, it can be difficult to separate that mental construct out from the similar mental phenomenon that populate our minds when we consider what we do and don't know. So their first task was to cleanly define the difference between beliefs, attitudes, and knowledge. Sometimes there are
2: differences of opinions on some of these definitions, and so we have learned through submitting papers and quibbling with reviewers to just be clear up front about the definitions that we are using.
0: So the difference, so an attitude, um, I could have an attitude that, um, I think that we should all have more guns, that it will make us safe. Um, but I might, but, but that attitude is unnecessary. It doesn't necessarily have to be tied to facts.
2: Attitudes Are heavily studied in social psychology and attitudes generally refer to something that has a an emotional or what they call an affective component.
0: And so I might understand that the statistics on the prevalence of guns indicate that the more guns that are present um, the more danger I am personally of of being injured by one. Um, But my attitude is irrespective of the true state of affairs in the world. I
2: might think that homosexuality is genetically determined, but I may have an attitude that I wish it wasn't. I may think, you know what, I wish that people had some control over their sexual orientation, but I believe that in the actual world, people do not. So what you think is true of the world is not necessarily the same thing as how you feel about it.
0: Beliefs are our approximation of the true state of affairs in the world.
2: Beliefs in that sense would be connected to actual things in the world. I believe that the climate is changing, for example.
0: For instance, I believe that light switches bring light or I believe that electricity um, can be used to bring light. That is that is rooted in, in, in evidence and needs necessarily to be connected to the state of affairs in real.
2: And knowledge then we defined and cognitive psychology has been in the business of studying knowledge for years, but as uh, what we call mental representations or kind of things that you know. So there are lots of ways that knowledge can differ from beliefs.
0: Knowledge um, is all that is stored in memory and is typically constructed of long term memories that are formed, um, usually combined with emotion and other related constructs.
2: so I could say for example I have knowledge about the arguments that people use when they say that tax cuts pay for themselves through increased economic activity I may believe that those arguments are not accurate and that that statement is false but nevertheless I can understand those arguments or I understand that people write stories about dragons and I could tell you about the properties of dragons, so that's knowledge. I do not believe that know- that dragons actually exist in the world. So
0: Our knowledge is that large mass that we have that helps us construct the world. And so attitudes are part of our knowledge of where we stand relative to other people in society. Beliefs um, typically are, um, in the, in the knowledge bank as well, um, that refer to how it is, um, we believe the world to function.
2: Anybody who is heavily involved in abortion debates knows the arguments that are used on both sides or on all sides of the abortion debate, but knowing the arguments that are used is not the same as understanding what a person's attitude is, which would tell you how they feel or which side they would be on. And so those things, so all three of those things can be different. We have been studying beliefs Um, In our research, although there is a fair amount of research on attitude change, in fact, there's a lot more research, I think, on attitude change than there is on belief change, but we have been studying belief change.
1: So with beliefs separated out as the subject of their research, Wolf and Williams began designing an experiment to both change people's minds, that is, change their beliefs, and then to check to see if those people realized that their beliefs had been changed. We first had subjects answer
2: a series of questions about their beliefs in an online pre screening
0: test. The experiment itself involved uh, having participants initially report what their attitudes were in a pre screen that occurred about two to three months before they appeared in the lab.
1: The screening was to determine people's current beliefs about issues that were apolitical and less likely to be tied to people's identities. That way, they'd be most likely to update their beliefs in light of new evidence or evidence that they were unaware existed. So they would rate on a one to nine scale
2: the extent to which they believed statements to be true. These statements were generally social science kinds of statements such as, to what extent do you believe that spanking is an effective means of discipline? To what extent do you believe that uh, watching television violence makes you violent? To what extent do you believe that homosexuality is a choice? And after filling out these online, these questions in the online pre screening, about two months later,
1: subjects would come into the lab for the experiment. Once they had an equal number of people who believe one way or the other, they moved on to the next stage. Those people came
2: into the lab for the experiment about two months later. Everybody read a text that either described evidence and arguments suggesting that spanking was effective, so half the people read that text, the other half read a text that presented evidence and arguments suggesting that spanking was not effective, and we arranged the design so that half of the subjects in the experiment read a text that was consistent with their previous belief or that reinforced their previous belief. The other half read a text that was inconsistent or that went against their previously stated belief.
0: Um, then at a later point, um, participants were asked to recall. their to First to report their current attitudes about spanking and then to recall what their original attitudes were.
2: After reading the texts, everybody then reported their belief about spanking again. And then one of the critical parts of the method was that people tried to recall the response that they gave at the beginning of the semester on this pre-screening questionnaire. So this was the memory task. People had to try to remember what response they gave when they answered the question about two months earlier. And we found basically two main findings. One was that when people read a text that was inconsistent or contradicted their previously stated belief, those people were more likely to shift their beliefs than the people who read a text that was consistent with their beliefs. Um, In most cases, this was not change from one extreme end of the scale all the way to the other. Rather, people would tend to move, say, from one end of the scale towards the middle,
1: in terms of their beliefs. And this is typical in research into mind change. Whether it's a belief or an attitude, people don't usually completely change their minds and pull a 180. They move about half that distance, going from strongly valent to ambivalent, or from ambivalent to valent, not from one pole to the other, though that does sometimes happen. And
2: the the critical finding was that when people change their beliefs we found a rather large memory error in which people's memory of their belief that they had reported a couple of months earlier tended to be inaccurate. And it was inaccurate in a particular way in that it was much more similar to their current belief than it was to their actual previous belief. So people were essentially acting as if their current belief has always been their belief.
1: That's right. What Wolfe and Williams found was a new kind of memory error, one that falls right in line with the previous research into memory. We now know, thanks to the work of researchers like Elizabeth Loftus, that memories aren't stored like files on a hard drive or books on a shelf. Instead, the brain constructs memories on the fly, and it constructs them anew each time we ask it to remember. Without anything else to go on, we tend to construct memories that, A, are based on who we are now and what influences are pressing on us at the moment, and B, that tend to paint us in the light we wish to be seen in at that moment. If we're feeling good about ourselves, we remember things in a positive light. If we are feeling bad, we remember them in a negative light. Bottom line, memories are stories we tell ourselves based on what we know and feel now not what we knew and felt way back when we had those experiences that we are trying to recall. What Wolfe and Williams found was that we do the same thing when remembering our old beliefs. We think that people have a generally
2: poor awareness of our belief changes because we think that belief change doesn't work like... Uh, changes say on a belief dial, where if my belief is at one end and I start reading evidence suggesting that it's wrong, and with each bit of evidence I read, I turn the belief dial down a bit, that would suggest that you are aware of your beliefs as they shift. We think that the process really doesn't work like that, that it works something more along the lines of a situation in which when whenever you want to assess your current beliefs, at that moment, you generate a belief based on information that is salient or easily available at the time.
0: People just don't simply have access to those previous beliefs, Um, and that's because of that they are using what other information is available.
2: And so in many cases, what will be easily available about your beliefs is your current belief or your, your sort of long held belief, especially if you know a lot about a topic or if it's particularly important to you, that belief may be relatively stable, but it also could be the case that if you read information or you generate arguments or have a conversation right before somebody asks you to report a belief, and that information is salient or available at the time you generate a belief that could influence your generation of your belief. And so we think that people just don't seem to be consciously aware of beliefs as they shift, but rather they just construct their beliefs at a particular moment. And then if you want to try to assess whether a belief has changed through a similar process, you would try to construct your memory of a past belief. And that's perhaps a more complicated process because then you are trying to, at a particular moment, construct a memory of what your past version of yourself used to believe. And we think that that process is also a process in which those memories are constructed by information that is salient or available at a particular moment. And one of the things that will probably have an influence over your construction of your past memory of this belief is your memory of your belief at the moment. So we think that under most circumstances, your current beliefs can, at least to some extent, bias your ability to accurately remember what you used to believe in the past.
0: What that has led us to basically is to suggest that um, the reason why people are remembering their previous attitudes as close to their own is largely because they do not have access to that previous attitude. Um, It exists within a lot of uh, cognitive psychology Um, evidence to suggest that actually we are pretty bad at remembering things and when we do remember things, what we do is we reconstruct that memory. That is the process by which we piece things together. There's
2: research uh, suggesting that attitudes are constructed on the fly in the same way. Um, Literature from reading comprehension suggests that our understanding of the meanings of individual words even is constructed kind of on the fly. So we think of our understanding of individual words often as being kind of like a mental dictionary where you read a word, you go into your memory and look up the meaning of it. But in fact, our understanding of the meaning of individual words seems to shift in subtle ways based on how they're used in a particular sentence in a process that is similar to what we are proposing. So we certainly are not the first ones to propose this general idea that, um, you know, our immediate thoughts or attitudes, our beliefs are sort of cobbled together by what's available. Really, we've been influenced by lots of other work in coming up with this conception that beliefs we think seem to work similarly. We've known for decades that memories are not recalled in a process that is akin to opening up a computer file, as you know, in which things are exactly as you typed them a few years ago, but rather memories are constructed based on information that is available at the time, various kinds of cues, beliefs about how memory works. And so in our paper on awareness of belief change, we think that when people attempt to remember previous beliefs, that that process works The same way that it works in trying to generate other kinds of memories, which is that it is constructive and based on information that's available now. And really, I don't think there's any reason to think that trying to remember a belief that you used to hold would act any differently than trying to recall other kinds of memories that are susceptible to various kinds of biases or distortions. So, yes, I would say our research is completely consistent with that kind of general conclusion about how memory works.
1: Wolf and Williams also said that the more you think about what you believe, the more salient your old beliefs will be. And so the more resistant they will be to change. And that's why they chose beliefs that were likely not often top of mind for most people, spanking, violence on television, that sort of thing. Though they haven't done the research yet, they think that a change to beliefs tied to tribal loyalty, identity, or your profession will likely be more noticeable. But for all the rest, for the majority of the change we experience, we update what we believe, and then we just forget. We simply forget that we ever believed otherwise. And here's one of the most important takeaways from this discovery. Wolf and Williams both say that since we tend to have poor recall for mind change, we tend to think that mind change must therefore be rare and difficult, which can lead to problems. Since we find that people seem to not
2: have very accurate memories of their previous beliefs after they've changed, or people seem to be relatively unaware of their belief changes, you could easily imagine that that circumstance would lead people to think that their beliefs don't change very much, right? If I think my beliefs about taxes or about Russia have been stable over the years, and I don't know whether they have been or haven't been, I could easily convince myself that my beliefs don't change very much. And there's a potential downside to that, which is that if my beliefs change more frequently than I realize. I may perhaps close myself off to information that is inconsistent with my beliefs because I might mistakenly believe that I'm not going to change my mind about anything. So you hear a lot of uh, talk about people in information silos, for example, right? People go online and they only read information that's consistent with their beliefs and they ignore things that are inconsistent with their beliefs. And perhaps a piece of that, at least, is people may mistakenly think that their beliefs aren't going to change. So you might imagine someone thinking, well, what's the point of reading this particular columnist or going to this particular website? Because I know I'm not going to believe this information or agree with it, and I know I'm not going to change my mind about it, so there's no harm in just ignoring it completely. And perhaps we're actually mistaken about the possibility of changing our beliefs because we don't seem to be aware of these changes when they do
0: happen. People, if if their attitude about whether they have changed their belief or not um, is inaccurate, then that may affect their ability to engage with new information. If you have thought your opinion has always been the same, what kind of incentive is there, or what are the odds do you think that more information will change that? So in a way, it can be a, a possibly a self-fulfilling prophecy that we're um, doing to ourselves, and that is, is selectively soaking up information that just simply meets our expectations, um, and uh, and eschewing anything that contradicts it. If that's the case, then clearly um, we are going to see um, ex- sort of extreme uh, people moving towards the extreme ends of uh, of attitudes. Um, and, uh, in the world of what's going on with respect to Facebook and the delivery of information, we see this as amazingly important to, um, on, on the level of journalism, on the level of politics and on the level of the public being informed generally. Um, if we're not aware of how beliefs work in the first place, then how can we, take measures to ensure that we are attaining say the highest levels of accuracy. And so, you know, simple rules of thumb like informing people that in fact belief change is not something that is a photo uh, or a record that we just skip back to may lead people to be a little bit more savvy in thinking about different viewpoints.
2: One of the consequences we think of this general, uh, lack of awareness of belief changes is that when people are doing um, things like political polling, and we think this would also be relevant in health domains, our results suggest that people should really stick to questions that ask how you feel or what your opinions are at a particular moment, rather than asking if you have changed. So asking questions such as Do you feel differently about the president now than you did after the election? Uh, Does your pain feel better now than it did six months ago? Those kinds of questions feel like natural questions to ask, but potentially you will get inaccurate answers and not because people are trying to deceive you or be hypocritical, but you may get inaccurate answers just because people can't necessarily remember what they used to believe. So in terms of things like polling, I think one of the consequences is that we would do well to ask questions that just stick to how people feel or what their opinions or beliefs are at a particular moment.
1: I think for many people, this will be unsettling. And I'm wondering, how does all this make you feel?
2: I mean, it makes me feel kind of satisfied or hopeful in that... It suggests that our beliefs are not so fixed and unchangeable that they can't be helped, Um, that people are open to changing beliefs or open to listening to evidence and considering it, even though we often act like our beliefs don't change. And there are lots of examples of trying to get people to change beliefs and finding that it is difficult or that it doesn't work. But it does suggest that we are at least potentially influenced by information that we hear. And so I think in that sense, it's kind of encouraging. I also just find it fascinating because to me, one of the things I love about psychology is any kind of example in which evidence suggests that our mental processes work differently than what we would think if we just kind of introspected, you know, so if I just sit here and think about how my own beliefs are formed, the hypothesis that we're working with is not what I would come up with. It, it feels to me very much like my beliefs are stable and they arise from evidence or from values, but I'm well aware of what they are and where they come from. And to suggest that there may be more ephemeral or fleeting than I might have thought is just interesting to me because you know i love any kind of phenomena in which the predictions or intuitions we would make don't match the evidence it's yeah. really the things i love about psychology
1: That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart Podcast. You can get all the previous episodes at Stitcher and iTunes and SoundCloud and Boing Boing and you are not so The show notes are over at you are not so More great podcasts like this one are over at Boing, boing The opening music that's Clash by Caravan Palace. You can follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. You can follow the podcast at NotSmartBlog. You can also go to Facebook slash you Are Not so Smart. You can help make this show better and get the show ad-free and get other cool stuff at Patreon. If you've gotten any value out of the show, know that it is a one-person operation. So support on Patreon is going to help maybe one day make it more than a one-person operation any kind of level of support, anything you do, you will get the show ad free at the higher levels. You get t-shirts and signed books and all sorts of other cool stuff. I have so much new stuff coming out in the next few months. Uh, just this next week, I have like 11 interviews, people with books, people with crazy ideas, new research, and new fallacy episodes are coming up. And one other thing, I'm going to be in Toronto on April 22nd, giving a uh, live talk about my upcoming book about how people change their minds and don't change their minds. So more info about that. You can find at all the stuff I told you to go to before I told you about Toronto. Okay. See you soon. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com Y-A-N-S-S.